This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Model UNs are educational simulations, basically role-playing, that teach participating students diplomacy, international relations, and how the United Nations works. At Model UN conferences, student delegates deeply study a United Nations member country, research topics of global interest, and then work to get resolutions passed on that country's behalf. They happen around the world at the high school and college level, and this week the Southwest Florida Model UN is happening on the campus campus of Florida Gulf Coast University, bringing together high school teams from schools around Southwest Florida. It's sponsored by the Naples Council on World Affairs in partnership with FGCU. Our guest today, Hannah Nusser, participated in Model UNs while she was a student at the State College of Florida Collegiate School and while she was a student at FGCU, where she graduated with a bachelor's in communication studies with minors in political science and global studies. She then got her Master of Human Rights degree with a concentration in Global Gender Studies and Arabic at University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Nusair worked on international projects during her academic career and after graduation, including working with a refugee support organization in Naples, Italy, and she was a secondary school teaching assistant in Madrid, Spain. Her core professional work focuses on gender equality for women and girls in marginalized communities. Today, Nusair works for the United Nations Foundation as a communication and advocacy associate for what's called Data2x. It's an initiative that works to improve the quality, availability, and use of gender data to make a practical difference in the lives of women and girls. I spoke with her yesterday. Let's hear that conversation now. Hannah, welcome to Gulf Coast Life. Thank you so much for having me. So for starters, when did you first hear about and become involved with Model UN? Yeah, so um, I became involved in Model UN in high school. Um, So I actually went to high school in Sarasota. Um, I went to the State College of Florida Collegiate School. Um, So that's up in Bradenton a bit. But um, I was a senior. Um, I thought in college I wanted to study communication, but um, I really wasn't sure. So I was actually recommended to start it. And I was absolutely terrified. Um, I was not a public speaker. I didn't know that much about international relations, but uh, attended my first conference. And the rest is history. I just kept trying again and again. And by the end of my senior year, I was hooked. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Explain how it works. Try to, you know, just as as like if you were at a cocktail party and somebody said, what is Model (laughs) UN? Just put it in simple terms if you can. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Model UN, it is essentially you have different committees um, and they're each based off of a UN initiative or a UN organization. So like, for example, UNDP, so the development program, or UNHCR, so the High Commissioner of Refugees. Um, And you are representing each individual country that is going to be within that committee. And you're actually debating to create a resolution for a global topic. So let's say, for example, you were focusing on UNHCR and you were looking at education for women refugees. So each of the individual countries would get together and they would debate and then they would create a resolution that is going to be voted on by the body. Um, And obviously there's conflict that comes in there because some countries want some things and some countries want others. Um, But that's how it goes. So So do the schools that participate, are they given a country or the teams, I guess, that participate are given a country and they know that beforehand so they've already done a bunch of research? Yes. So um, sometimes schools get more than one country. Um, So bigger schools maybe have like two or three. Smaller schools will probably focus just on one. And so they're going to 
look into everything that the country has done on that issue so far. Um, and so each of the delegates is super prepared. Uh, they do months and months of research trying to figure everything out and making sure that they have ideas going into committee on things that they want to push that is focused on their own country's um, foreign policy. Who does Model UN? Who benefits most from Model UN? You know, put on your advocacy hat for Model UN. Is this people who want to go into international relations? Is this any student can have their critical thinking skills improved somewhere in between? I think it's everyone. Um, I think for students who do want to go into international relations, it's very, very important. Um, just because you learn the foundational skills of like how the UN works, which is really important. If I wouldn't have done Model UN, I wouldn't have known that going into even graduate school. Um, but I think it also can be for everyone. I think that, you know, learning how to negotiate, learning leadership skills, learning how to public speak is very important no matter what field that you go into. So um, I have friends who are across all fields who are on my Model UN team, and they all know that it's beneficial to what they do right now. You were very involved with it while you were here at FGCU, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tell us about that time. And, and, you know, is that is it something that happens just once a year at that collegiate level? Or is it, it looked like from their website, it happens yeah. more frequently. So um, there's kind of two prongs to that. So there is I was um, on the FGCU Model UN team, the competitive side, and then there's the hosting the conference side. So we act as delegates, and then we also act as chairs. Um, So when we are delegates, um, we are going to conferences around the U.S. Um, So when I was in Model UN, my team went to Chicago, uh, we went to Atlanta, we went to Charlotte, um, and then the big national conference, which is at the UN General Assembly in New York City. So that's when we actually, the college students take on the different countries and we're competing against other colleges. Um, But then also, we're always year long working towards Swiffelman. Um, So each of the college students actually acts as a chair in a committee. That's the Southwest Florida Model UN. Yes, Southwest Florida Model UN. Yes. Yeah. Um, And so with that, we are actually writing the background guides. So we're the one who is um, proposing the committees. Like, for example, I did a the first U.N. women committee um, where we focused on eliminating gender based violence against women. Um, I wrote a background guide on that during um, like my whole I think it was believe my sophomore year. And then I was able to actually direct the committee um, and the delegates and how they wanted to create a resolution, help them with that. What's it like to be back on campus um, and being the keynote speaker at something that you were so involved with? You weren't you never did Southwest Florida Model UN as a high school student, did you? Um, But still, what's it like to be back on campus and and to be in that position of getting up and talking to everybody? You know, it's honestly it feels like such a full circle moment because I was thinking back to my first Swiffelman. I was sitting in the front row and I watched the now chair of um, Swiffelman. It's Alan Van Egmond. I watched him give the keynote speech and I was so inspired. And I was like, man, I really hope that one day I'm able to work in the field. And now it's me, which is crazy. And it's also really inspiring to see the students that I have watched because I have volunteered at Swiffelman for now after I graduated. I graduated in 2019, about four years. So... They were freshmen when I had them in my committees and other seniors. And I was at FGCU right now. And some of them, they're like, Hannah, you were my chair, <laughs> which was really, really exciting. And yeah, I love to see how they've grown. Yeah. 
what are you going to talk about? Are you going to talk about the work that you do? And then this is, gives you now an opportunity to tell our listeners about the work that you do now. Yeah. So um, I'm first going to talk about why Model UN is so important to me. Um, I think that I would not be where I am today if it was not for Model UN. Um, it taught me how to public speak. It taught me how to negotiate with others. And it also taught me a lot about, which is what I work in now, uh, humanitarian issues and human rights. So um, once I was doing humanitarian committees, I realized I wanted to study it. Um, So after um, I graduated from FGCU, I went and actually got my master's in human rights. Um, So I think I'm going to talk a bit about my journey of studying human rights, um, international work, and um, then I did a more specific focus on the rights of women and girls. So essentially from there, um, I ended up working with international NGOs. I worked with Women for Women International, which is an organization out of D.C. that works with women in conflict. Um, And then I got my job at the UN Foundation, which focuses on gender equality um, or measuring gender equality in the UN member states. So Um, what's it like to work with the United Nations Foundation having come through the arc that you did? Was that always your target or or did you just sort of wind up there and had the right skill set? You know, um, I always knew ever since I started Model UN that I was I really wanted to work within the UN kind of sphere. You know, there's a lot of different moving parts of the UN. I wasn't exactly I didn't know that much about the foundation at first. I thought I was going to end up working at UN Women or UNICEF, which is the Children's Fund. But the foundation has been so valuable to me. It's a space where you're actually able to kind of like work on the really specific issues that is going on within the larger global world crises. So like, for example, the foundation focuses on hunger and it focuses on climate change and it focuses on energy and it focuses on gender equality. But it's different initiatives that are focusing on those things. It's not just looking at each one at once, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, you've also volunteered with Model UNs around the world. Yeah. Um, Are they all basically the same or where they're held determines what they're like? I mean, kind of connect those dots. Yeah, I think that they definitely differ. Um, I have done a few in Europe and um, it's really interesting the way that they go. I feel like the ones in Europe are... um, It's hard to describe, but American students are a lot more willing to, like, push through and debate a lot more. Hmm. So the framework's the same, but the temperament is The temperament is a bit different. It's a bit different. Um, European students are a bit more reserved, um, which as high school students to actually come out and be debating these really difficult issues with each other is pretty cool, you know? Um, So that's the one thing that I have noticed. There's a different temperament between like different cultural delegates. Do the times that are happening around a Model UN, which is essentially a simulation, Mm. impact or in some way inform what's being talked about? Like there's a lot of stuff going on around the world right now on the international stage. Is that all part of what a Model UN is going to deal with or is it a little bit more simulation? 
Definitely. So I think the first thing is that a lot of the um, students who are actually doing the model event are very inspired by the stuff that's going on within the world today. So they are actually in Model UN because they want to help fix these compounding global crises. And I feel like specifically Swiffelman, um, they've done a great job, the Naples Council, with making sure that everything is very topical. So all of their committees are focusing on issues that are happening today. For example, I know that they're doing a committee on the Commission of the Status of Women, which is actually happening in New York this week. Um, and it's focused on women's reproductive rights. Rights. Um, so a lot of the students who are very passionate about that in their daily lives are going into that committee um, and they're able to actually express their own views through the country. So they have to make sure that they're using the country's actual views as well. But yeah. Hmm. Um, is there a winner declared? I mean, I guess a country gets their resolution passed or mm -hmm. something like that. But at the end of the day, are there judges? Is there a point system? Like how, how does that work? Yeah. So each individual committee is going to have three um, delegates who are going to receive prizes. There is going to be a third, second and first place in each committee. And the top one is best delegate. And all the kids are trying to fight for that best delegate spot. It's always so difficult to pick the best delegate. I've been on the side where I have to judge them, and it's so. You, so difficult. there are judges that are yes. that are watching and taking notes and maybe conferring with each other, or is it a ballot system? So um, there is the actual dais. So the dais is the chair and the co-chair, and that's college students. Um, they are going to have rankings of their top three delegates, and then there's also going to be judges that are from the Naples Council in the room too. So there'll be three judges in the back of the room who will also do their own ranking um, and then you combine them together and that's how you decide a winner. Does the winner get something? They get college scholarships. I was going to guess that. Which is amazing and that's very unique to this specific conference. I have never seen that before in any conference I've ever been to. Hmm. Um, at this point in your career, what's your dream job on this path that you're on? That's a really big question. Um, I would love to work specifically, and this comes from my Model UN experience, on girls' leadership. And so I would like to probably work on a UN initiative that focuses on making sure that girls are like equipped to become leaders. Um, so girls' education or um, making sure that girls can get involved in like the international relations sphere because it's been really inspiring to me. One last pitch from you. Why should a parent who's listening or a student who's listening um, decide to engage with Model UN? One, it is a way to have students do something fun and be with their friends and learn something new in an environment that is completely different than all other extracurricular activities. Um, it is a way to actually have students just learn confidence um, and learning how to put themselves out there and debate on these issues that are really important. And then also just it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all the time we have for this part of the show. I want to thank my guest. Hannah Nusser is a communication and advocacy associate for Data2x, the United Nations Foundation, and the keynote speaker at the 2023 Model UN being held this week at Florida Gulf Coast University. Hannah, thank you so much for coming in and talking with me and my listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to pivot now to some reporting. Our new investigative team, Eileen Kelly and Andrea Melendez, recently published. The Immokalee Fair Housing Alliance is offering hope to poor residents of Immokalee with its campaign to build housing for 128 families there. Here's WGCU's Eileen Kelly. 
¿Cómo se llama? Bernabela. When Bernabella crossed into the United States from Chiapas, Mexico, with her young children about a decade ago, she did so in search of a better life. America, she was told, was filled with endless opportunities for those willing to work hard. She saw pictures capturing the beauty of Florida, so she set out arriving in Immokalee. She and her husband found work, but like others who came to Immokalee before them, they discovered that there were few housing options aside from dilapidated trailers. Bernabella and her children took us on a private tour of a trailer she and her family once called home. We are not using her last name nor her children's due to their status as immigrants. From a distance, the rig looks cheery. It stands out among a number of others in the area with its royal blue and white paint, thanks to Mennonite use on a mission trip after Hurricane Irma. A neighboring trailer is infested with mold. The exterior paint is impossible to identify because it's awash in moldy black, gray, and green hues. The rig's underbelly is crumbling. Yeah, she said that the condition of her trailer was exactly like that. And the only difference is that there was some student religious organization came, did volunteer work, and painted the trailer, but they didn't fix all the, the defect. Laura Safer Espiniza is a retired New York State judge who's been advocating for the working poor in Immokalee for years. She said that after Hurricane Irma, Bernabella's whole family was forced to move into a single room in the trailer so another family could move into a second bedroom. A third bedroom was then rented to men. We all had to share a very cramped room and other people were living in there too. And there was a lot of flies and a whole bunch of insects that got in through the night so it wasn't easy to sleep either. And we didn't have any privacy or anything and then in the restroom that we had, there was a big hole in it and we were scared that animals would come up in it, so it wasn't very nice either. That's Ashley, the middle child. She's 11. The years the family lived in the trailer, the youngest child, Kimberly, who is now eight, experienced a series of health issues. Here's Seifa Espiniza translating for Bernabella. Her youngest daughter was always sick. She had a lot of congestion, and it was the mold, the bacteria, a lot of respiratory illness. Kimberly also suffered stomach problems because of her fear of using the bathroom because of the snakes and other animals coming through the hole. A lot of animals coming in and I didn't really want to go use the restroom either. So I had to hold it in. These are the unseen costs of this kind of living. What it does to people, what it does to families, what it does to children. These kids are good students, you know. They deserve a private, quiet, safe place to study and try to make a better future. Bernabella and her husband paid $1,000 a month for the family to live there in just one bedroom. The combined rent, including the other family and the room with single men, was over $2,000. When Bernabella's pastor saw the living conditions, he took her and her family into his home. It's just temporary. Safer Espiniza says it took no time for the trailer to fill up with different tenants. I mean, the landlords don't sleep on this opportunity to make big bucks. Now, the rig fetches $3,200 a month because each of the 10 men living there is required to pay $80 a week. Some of the men are in the kitchen and they tell us it's okay to come inside. There's a dampness in the air in some areas while it's stifling in other parts. Tile floors in one of the bedrooms are riddled with cracks. A collage of blue painter's tape is on the ceiling. The children say it's to keep the bugs from dropping on their heads when they sleep. It's these bugs, but they only, only go like to the light and they have like wings. And then um, like the wings fall off and they become kind of like ants. And they used to be like on our bodies sometimes. We used to go to sleep. I mean, it was hard. Eddie is 17 and the oldest of Bernabella's children. His old bedroom is about 9 feet by 9 feet. There's a bunk bed and a single bed. Eight people were living in there at one point. 
There's still a few of Eddie's old glow-in-the-dark stars on the ceiling. Well, you know, you always need a little bit of joy or something. He points where a hole in the floor has been repaired. Another bathroom had a bathtub that needed to be hoisted up to keep it from falling in the ground. Same for a toilet. Bernabella said aside from the Mennonites, the tenants did most of the repairs over the years. Nobody does any repairs. The people who live here, we take it out of our own pockets and we repair because we don't want our children to live like that. A bathroom window is still stuck open, giving easy access to animals and other critters. There are also holes in the walls in the kitchen cabinets, an easy passage for frogs, something Ashley and her mother were not thrilled about. Whenever my mom would go cook and look in the pan, there was frogs. There was frogs in the pans. She didn't know what they could do inside the pan, and it was, she was like, very gross, too. This is a snapshot of substandard housing for roughly 1,000 or so of the 6,000 families that call Immokalee home. Habitat for Humanity has built over 1,000 homes here in the last 45 years, but about 43% of those who apply don't qualify for the homes because they don't make enough money. Enter Safer Espinoza and her husband, Errol Bunsman. They, along with a dozen or so people, are the backbone of the Immokalee Fair Housing Alliance. The group formed after Hurricane Irma when independent charitable organizations rushed to Immokalee to assist victims with food, water, diapers, and medicine. The more Safer Espinosa, Bunsman, and other group leaders thought about the situation, the more they realized their efforts were just band-aids on a festering problem. And that's the lack of safe, affordable housing. And the answer was, you can't do it here. You can't get the land. It's too expensive. You have to have it rezoned because there's no big piece of land that's zoned for multifamily. And politically, it'll never happen. But it is happening by individual donations from $5 to $1 million. Zero federal and state dollars will be used because of government policies on funding for undocumented people. To date, the Immokalee Fair Housing Alliance has raised about $5 million, enough for initial cost, infrastructure, and the completion of the first building. The group is about $1 million shy of being able to complete the second building. It costs about $2.8 million per building. There's been a shortage of affordable housing in Immokalee for decades, but it was made a lot worse by Hurricane Irma and the most recent hurricane. Affordable housing is the missing link to helping those families, hardworking families, escape from poverty and exploitation. Errol Bunsman spoke recently to some 80 people to celebrate a wall raising for the first apartment building. In all, his group plans to build at least eight two-story buildings that will have 16 units each. Rent will be based on family's income and may not exceed 30% of that. Here he is again. People that get to move in will change everything. The kids won't get as sick as often, so they won't miss school. The parents won't miss work as often. They won't have to spend 70% of their income for rent. But when your rent drops to 30% of household income, which is what it's supposed to be for everybody in the country, then there is money left over for decent quality of life. And that's what we're bringing about. Among the first 16 families that will live in this community is Bernabella's. What does it feel like to be standing where you're going to be living? Muy feliz, contenta. Oh, sí. Muy emocionada también, sí. She's very happy, content, filled with emotions all the time. Sí, muy contenta, sí. Feliz por los niños de tener un lugar donde estar. She's especially happy for the children who will have a decent place to live. 
For WGCU News, I'm Eileen Kelly with Andrew Melendez in Immokalee. That is all the time we have for today's show. Thanks to our earlier guest, Hannah Nusser, Communication and Advocacy Associate for Data 2X at the United Nations Foundation and the keynote speaker at the 2023 Southwest Florida Model UN that's happening today at FGCU in partnership with the Naples Council on World Affairs. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida. Florida.